So we're going to be here in John chapter 13. And, and, and John 13 is, it's right on, it's the very beginning of the upper room discourse. It's right on the beginning fringe of it. The upper room discourse runs the, runs the length of chapters 13 through about 17 of, of the Gospel of John. In these chapters, these scriptures are probably some of the most renowned scriptures that we have when it comes to the life of Jesus. These scriptures will take us into the most intimate thoughts of Jesus that we ever had recorded. Right? Commentators will say that the, the upper room discourse is the holy of the holies. Right? If scripture, if scripture was the temple, then the upper room discourse would be the sanctuary, which would allow us to go right into the presence of God himself. Um, we get a chance to witness the very thinking and the very emotions of Jesus Christ um, in his last moments here on earth before his crucifixion. You know, within hours, they're going to hang Jesus on a cross from this point. Within 24 hours, they will have killed him and buried him in a tomb. And what we we're going to read here, um, or what we would see here in these next four chapters, is very much so Jesus' last words uh, to his disciples, certainly, but even to any of us. Um, he's going to give his disciples warnings over these last four, over these four chapters. He's going to, he's going to warn them that the ruler of this world is coming. He's going to tell them, but he has nothing in me, right? He's going to tell them that they're going to hate you. He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. He said, a servant is not greater than his master, right? You're not of this world. He said, if you were of this world, they would love you because they love their own, but you're not of this world. I took you out of this world, which means they're going to hate you. He said, they're going to drag you out of synagogues. They're going to drag you into courts. He says, they're going to, they're going to arrest you. They're going to try you and they're going to kill you. And they're going to do all this thinking that they're doing God's will. He tells them that mothers are going to hate daughters. Uh, husbands are going to uh, hate wives. Fathers are going to hate sons. He said, and they're going to do it all because they first hated me. But he's also going to comfort them, right? He's going to tell them that, listen, in my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would told you. He said, but I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I do that, I'm coming back to get you, right? He tells them, I'm not going to leave you guys as orphans. That's not the deal here. He said, but it's better for you if I go away because I then get, I get to send the helper, right? The Holy Spirit, the comforter, the teacher, the leader. I get to send you the weapons that are going to be necessary for you to take on the spiritual warfare that you're about to engage in. He tells them that in this world, you're going to have tribulation, but... Be of good cheer, guys, because I've overcome the world, right? Jesus is going to pray for them, and he's going to prepare them over these next four chapters of what life is going to look like and what's going to be necessary for them once he's gone. But in this chapter that we're going to read, in these, in these first few verses that we're going to get to tonight, um, he's going to give us an example. He's going to give us a, an illustration of probably the most the most magnificent example that we've ever gotten from anybody of what true servanthood and true humility looks like. And it comes from our king, right? Nothing more fitting than that. So we'll read down the first five, the, the first five verses of John chapter 13. In verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So it says here in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover. So the Passover, we know that was a festival and a feast, right? It was used to celebrate the, the liberation and, and, and the redemption of Israel, right? It was an event which, which marked the beginning of the Jews forever uh, binding themselves together as a people and as a nation. You know, very similar to, to the way it was with us, right? When the Lord liberated us from our bondage of slavery, right? And we became a new creation and began our new life. This feast, this celebration, the Passover that they would have would be to, uh, to commemorate, to celebrate that liberation, to celebrate that new life that they had now come into. Uh, the Passover was one of three mandatory feasts that every Jewish man was, was uh, obligated to come to Jerusalem, pilgrimage to Jerusalem, at least once a year for one of them. Um, the other th- the three feasts were the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Passover, right? So the history, how Passover began, and I'm sure I'm not telling you anything that you guys don't know, but we'll go down through a little bit of the history. Um, it started with a guy named Joseph, right? We all know that. Joseph, he had 11 brothers, right? He was the son of Israel, son of Jacob, one of 12 brothers. And uh, his other 11, bro- 11 brothers were sick of him. He was sick of him. He said he was, a, he was a mama's boy, a daddy's boy. He was entitled, arrogant. He was always talking about these dreams, which left them underneath him. And they were over it, man. So they thought he was a know-it-all, and they sold him into slavery. Joseph will spend the better half of 13 years um, in prison in Egypt um, until he comes into a situation where he ends up uh, getting opportunity to interpret one of Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt's dreams, right? Pharaoh's tripping out. He doesn't know what to do. This dream with these cows and this grain, he's losing his mind. The guy, the baker or the cupbearer tells him, this guy Joseph down there, he knows how to interpret dreams. He interpreted me and the baker's dreams. Get him up here. He brought him up there and he rightfully interpreted the Pharaoh's dream, right? To the degree where he left Pharaoh in a position where he could be very profitable because of the information that Joseph gave him, right? He told him, save away those seven years of good harvest. Save those away because the seven years of famine has come. And it came. Right. And when it did so, Pharaoh recognized very soon that he had just profited big time from from Joseph. Joseph, because of his interpretation, because of the gift God gave him, he put Pharaoh in a position to be the the most powerful man in the world. So quickly, Pharaoh uh, brought Joseph from the position he was in and made him basically vice president of Egypt, made him the governor of Egypt. One of the best comeback stories you'll ever hear of. Joseph went from the bottom of the prison all the way up to the second man in charge of the world. So eventually Joseph's brothers and his father had to come because they were they were subject. They were a victim to this famine. Right. And we get one of the best types of Christ, one of the best illustrations of Jesus Christ that we have in the Bible. Right. When Joseph's brothers come and he's able to tell the man what you guys meant for evil. God used for good. man. I don't blame you. I forgive you. Go get dad. Go get everybody. Come up here. We're going to set you guys up. We're going to give you lake houses. We're going to put you in the best spots. And he did that. And they lived and they prospered and they grew and their families grew. And as the years went on, Joseph died, right? And so did that Pharaoh. And here comes the new Pharaoh, right? Who has no clue who Joseph was, no clue who that Pharaoh was or the deal brokered between them. All he knows is there's a lot of Hebrews running around here and they're starting to look real threatening because they're starting to outnumber us, right? So he devises a plan. He's got to put them into bondage. He's got to put them into slavery, put them in these labor camps. 
And he's going to have the Hebrews work for him, and that'll keep them oppressed to the degree where they can never really revolt, no matter how many there is. And this is how it went. For 400 years, the Hebrews stayed in slavery until God decided to intersect a man named Moses, who's on the run from murder. He's wanted in Egypt. He heads out to the backside of the desert, and God intersects him and reveals himself to him through a burning bush. We all know the story. God says, Moses, I need you to go do, do, do something for me. I need you to go get my people. He says, I need you to take that staff. I need you to take your brother because I know you got the stuttering thing going on. He said, and I need you to go in there and I need you to get my people. And Moses does. Moses shows up and says, Pharaoh, I represent the Lord, the true God, the I am. And he said, let my people go. And we know the story. He goes down through nine plagues. Pharaoh continues to, to, to harden his heart. Pharaoh continues to renege on his deal. And Moses continues to hit him with the, with the, with the plagues. Right? The gnats, the flies, the lice, the, the blood. And eventually they get to the 10th plague, right? It's the angel of death. It's that, it's that, that judgment that God promises he's going to send through where he's going to execute every firstborn male, whether man or beast, from the least to the greatest in all of Egypt. Now, the judgment that God leave, sets out on, these, on the firstborn male, it's on the entire land of Egypt, which means everybody who's in Egypt, which means the Israelites too, right? The Israelites have to fall underneath this judgment because our God is fair and he's nothing but fair. But God's not going to leave his, his chosen people out to the dark, right? So he makes a way for them. He provides a way of escape for them, but it would require their complete obedience. They would have to do exactly what the Lord said, and they would escape the coming judgment. So what he told them, he said, on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, which is usually between March and April, um, they're to select a spotless lamb, free of blemish, free of, free of uh, defect. And they were to wait until the 14th day to slaughter this lamb, right? Between the 10th and the 14th day, in those four days, those days you were, you were to inspect the lamb. Just in case any, you overlooked anything, to give any opportunity for any spot or any defect to show itself that you might not have caught. Because this seems to be a perfect spotless lamb. And on the 14th day, saying that these, this lamb is correct, it did pass the inspection, you're to slaughter the lamb. And then they would take the blood of that lamb and they would paint their doorposts and their lentils, the cross beams, right? Making a, a shape very similar to a cross. And when the angel of death came through that night to pass judgment, it would pass over every house that, would co that was covered by the blood of the lamb. Right? But for the rest of Egypt, every firstborn male, whether man or beast, from the least to the greatest, was executed. And it was, it's amazing to consider the horror that it must have been in Egypt that morning. Right? As the, as the streets filled with the screams and the, and the mourning of every, every wife and every mother that woke up that morning to find their husband or their sons executed with no explanation whatsoever. Nobody had a clue what had gone down. You know, and unbeknownst to these Israelites that, that, that was there in, in, uh, in Egypt, and everybody who would celebrate this mind-blowing act of God, right, over all the years to come, unbeknownst to them was that this event that was happening here in Egypt it was just a, a shadow of what was to come, right? It was just a sneak peek of the main event. For 1,500 years, the Jewish people will celebrate annually the Feast of Passover as prescribed by God. And they would do so in remembrance of when God delivered them uh, and their ancestors from the judgment of death and from their oppressors that were holding them in bondage there in Egypt. And for 1,500 years, they would assume that they were celebrating on what happened on that night way back in Egypt. 
That was until a man named John the Baptist, right? He stood up in a desert and he pointed across it and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Right now, our Lord Jesus had come down to earth. He had taken on the form of a man so that he could fulfill that requirement, right? He could be that perfect set pa- uh, uh, sacrificial Passover lamb. He needed to supply the blood that we so desperately needed to, to, to get out of the judgment. And he would live a sinless life, unspotted, unblemished, the same way that the Lord commanded them to take four days to, to inspect the lamb, right? Our Lord Jesus, in his last week of his life, he would also be inspected. You guys remember in Matthew 22, the religious leaders came after Jesus um, and they kept coming at him and trying to, trying to indict him, trying to find different ways to, to, to catch him up, to get him to sin, right? The Pharisees showed up first. The Pharisee says, a good teacher, tell us, uh, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes? And Jesus, knowing exactly what they're up to, he says, well, tell me, whose face is on that coin? And they said, well, it's Caesar's face. He said, okay. Render to Caesar with that which is Caesar's, right? The Pharisees didn't see that one coming, so now they got to go. And now here comes the Sadducees, right? Their counterpart. And they come in, and they think they're going to get him with the spiritual question. The Pharisees, it didn't work with the political question, so they'll come at him with the spiritual question. They said, good teacher. They said, there was a man who had a wife, and he had seven brothers, right? The man dies, and they got no kids. So the brother marries the wife, and then that brother dies, and the next brother marries the wife, and so on and so forth, until all seven brothers die, and then at the very end, the wife dies. He said, in the resurrection, whose wife would she be? Because they all had her. And Jesus looks at him. He must have had a little chuckle. He said, man, don't you know, in the resurrection, there's going to be no marriage, and there's going to be no giving in marriage. He said, we're all going to be like angels of of God. And these guys read this. How did he do that? So they left. And now comes the scribes, right? The most cunning of them all. The lawyers of the day, they're definitely going to get him. And they came with the best question. They came to him. They said, good teacher, tell us this. Which out of all the commandments is the greatest? Oh, they must have just been sitting there like this. And Jesus said, I'll tell you which is the greatest commandment. This is the greatest. He said that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, without your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He said, in the second, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on those two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. And the scribes had to go as well. Our Savior was found unblemished and unspotted by the religious leaders. He passed his inspection. As we go on in this, in, in, in this gospel, we'll find that Jesus was arrested the night before the Passover. That they're going to crucify him and he's going to die on the Passover exactly as prescribed by our Lord all those years before. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements so perfectly that we find out in John chapter 19, verse 33, that they didn't even break a bone in his body. They forego the, the, the uh, uh, protocol for making sure that somebody dies quickly on the cross. And they didn't even break a bone. They stabbed him with a spear. After our Lord's resurrection, after we're able to put all the pieces together of how everything went down, we're really able to recognize and appreciate the genius of our God, right? When we recognize that he was describing all along, he was describing everything about his son who will be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Jesus being crucified was not something that was as a result of anything, right? Um, Jesus being crucified was not a result of his teachings. 
It wasn't a result of him teaching radical new doctrines which were uprooting the religious system that these, these Pharisees and Sadducees had, had established for all these years. It wasn't a result of that. It wasn't a result of Judas's betrayal in the garden. It had absolutely nothing to do with that. Him being crucified wasn't a result of Pilate's decision to, to let Barabbas go and, and, and have Jesus crucified. It wasn't a result of that. Jesus Christ was sent here intentionally because of our father's love and so that he could be the sacrificial lamb that we needed. And the way that Jesus died, it wasn't similar to the original Passover. He was the Passover. He set the criteria. He wasn't fulfilling criteria. He was the criteria. Jesus was a male. He was young. He was without blemish. He was examined. He was slain in public. He had no broken bones. And his blood would be necessary to be applied for us to avoid the coming judgment. He was the Passover. Everything else was replicating this. Revelation 13 tells us that he was the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. All of this happened. This criteria was set long before the Hebrews ever showed up in Egypt. And through this ultimate sacrifice, his blood would be offered to cover us. Because it wasn't the life of the lamb that would save us from the coming judgment. It was the death and it was the blood. Right? Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Right? It's a bloody business. And though just like the Israelites back in Egypt, it would require us to be obedient and to apply the blood for us to be able to be covered. So that being said, verse 1 it says, now being for the, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It said that he knew that his, his hour had come to depart. His hour had, uh, to be glorified had come. It was time to fulfill the reason that he came and returned to the Father. You know, when somebody is leaving to go to a faraway land, or they're going to be gone for a long time. A lot of times you'll find that once they've, they've, once they've fulfilled all of the, the, everything that they need to do with the outside world, once they've made all of the necessary arrangements, they've done all the phone calls, they've run all their errands, typically somebody will then retire to a quiet place, right? And they'll surround themselves with a small family group of people that they love the most so that they can spend time with them before they go off. This is what we find our, our Savior doing here tonight. This is what's going on here in the upper room discourse. He separated himself with the men that he loves the most. And he's spending time with them before his hour to depart has come. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John's main objective in this gospel is to showcase Jesus Christ's deity. Right? We know the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are the, the synoptic Gospels, right? They mean it read together. Those Gospels go in chronological order with each other for the most part. They have very similar miracles. They have a very similar setup from Jesus' birth or thereabouts. They have a beginning and then they end at, at, at Jesus' uh, uh, crucifixion and, and ascension. But John's Gospel is exclusive. John's Gospel is focused and pointed toward proving to the Gnostics of that time and proving to the naysayers of that time that Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God. 
what's remarkable to me is, is how often throughout this gospel to do that, to show that Jesus Christ is God. John will show how much Jesus loves us, and he'll show Jesus' humility. Those are the two things that he shows so often when he's trying to make a case that Jesus is God. John uses the word love 57 times in this gospel. That's more times than all three gospel writers combined use the word love. And Jesus says that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, there's a love that Jesus has for all people, right? We know that. That's why Jesus came on a rescue mission here to save us from our sins. But then there's a special kind of love that he has for those who are his own, right? And that's a love that has a certain dynamic to it because it's met with a response, right? There's a certain love that Jesus has for us, that one that, that allows us to experience his love in all of its fullness, you know, in all of its glory, because it's met with a response from people who are obedient to him. And that's what he's talking about here when he says that he loved them to the end. And he doesn't mean that he loved them to the end, um, like he, he loved them until he was dead, right, or until it was over. To the end means to the fullest extent. Jesus loved them to the fullest extent. Verse 2, it says, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, John tells us that at this point, the devil had put uh, uh, it into, heart, into Judas's heart, the plan to betray Jesus. Now, the same word that is translated put is also translated to throw, right? So if we read it like that, that the devil threw the plot into Judas's heart to betray Jesus, it reminds us quite a bit about uh, how Paul described in Ephesians the fiery darts of the wicked one, right? The problem we have that Judas has here is he's an unbeliever, right? We know that from John chapter 6. Jesus lets us know one of you is a devil. Judas is an unbeliever, which means he doesn't have the shield of faith which is necessary, Paul tells us, to quench the, darts of the, uh, the fiery darts of the wicked one. So this is no doubt the point where Satan gives Judas the plan to betray Jesus and lead a dispatch of troops into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knows that Jesus is, is known to frequent with his disciples, right? And it's in that garden that he's going to go and he's going to identify and he's going to betray his king with a kiss, right? And we know that because we know the end of the story. I believe this is the point here that Satan puts that into his heart. In verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God. He rose from supper and he laid aside his garments. He took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So the Jewish custom, it was expected that the host of a dinner party would have, he would instruct his slaves to wash his guests' feet um, before eating. Right. And this particular task of washing the guest feet, it was reserved for the lowest of the slaves that that host would have. Right. And, and in this culture that they lived in, a, a culture of sandals and dirt roads, um, this was a necessary custom. Right. Um, and it was typically expected, you know, not by everybody, but by, by, by the upper elite, it was expected. And this washing was typically done upon arrival. But since uh, they probably rented this upper room and Jesus and his disciples certainly didn't roll around with any slaves, they probably didn't have their feet washed. Um, 
and chances are these guys weren't expecting to get their feet washed. I mean, truth be told, these guys are, are blue-collar fishermen, Peter and the guys. They, they certainly don't come from a life of dinner parties and servants. Um, I don't think anybody batted an eye when nobody came and washed their feet up. But they would all be sitting around at this, this U-shaped table called a triclinium. Right? We have to get the idea of the Rembrandt picture um, of everybody sitting at this long table and Jesus is in the middle and they're all looking over each other's shoulders. Um, that picture is foolishness. It, it doesn't actually make any sense. The custom of the day, the way that they're, they're, um, they would have been set up would have been in a triclinium. It's a, it's a short table, kind of U-shaped, and they'd all be reclined back. They'd be sitting on the floor on a pillow. Their legs would be under the table, and they'd be reclined back on an elbow. And from that position, they would eat and dip the bread into the oil, into the sop, and they would be almost into each other's shoulders. And you would hear in the King James Version, they say that he was speaking to their breast. That's because they would be leaned back into each other's shoulders as they went around, kind of similar to dominoes when they're knocked down, you know? Um, an interesting point of this is that Luke, chapter 22, Luke tells us that while this is going on, while, while this this scene is happening, that the disciples actually get engaged into an argument. And they actually start arguing with each other about which one of them is the greatest disciple of all, right? So it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. Now, guys, I have at times in my life, in the stupidity that, that has been my life for, for, for a long time before Christ hijacked me, um, I've at times found myself willing to do things I didn't want to do or that I ever thought that I would possibly ever do, right? I have lowering myself to a position um, far below my self-worth or any standard that I'd ever set for myself. And it's all due to my bad decisions, my bad habits, um, and just plain bad luck, right? I have found myself in a position just to get by um, accepting the most bottom-of-the-barrel jobs. I mean stuff that nobody wanted to do. That's the only reason I could get that job. And if somebody like me hadn't come along who was so defeated and so uh, desperate, that job probably never would have got done, but I was happy to take it because I was willing to do anything. Um, I found myself living in the most disgusting living conditions that you could ever imagine. Like I'm talking about places that if you look through the window from the outside, it would, it would make you kind of sick. I was living there. I was, I was calling that home. And I was so, uh, my decisions in life had dropped me to a level where I had no other options. This was it for me. I have been, just to get by, I found myself getting into and staying in some of the most toxic relationships you could ever imagine. I mean, Dr. Phil would have, he would need a week session to deal with some of the stuff that, that we had going on in some of my relationships. And I stayed in them and I voluntarily got into them because I was at such a low position. I was so defeated in life because of my decisions and where I had ended up, where I'd been spit out. That that's all I accepted. I was, I, I didn't, ex my self-worth was bottomed out. I say that to say, guys, what we read here in this text, this was not the case with Jesus. 
This was not the position he found himself in when he went and did the things that he we're going to read here that he's doing. It says here in verse three, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. He rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. It says, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands. That means Jesus was well aware of his possession, right? He knew that the father had given him everything. He didn't need anything from anyone, right? It tells us that he came from God and he was going to God. I mean, Jesus knew that he was royalty, right? He knew he had come from the father and he was returning soon to retake his throne at the right hand of the father. He was well aware of who he was and where he was going. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, Paul tells us a little more about the identity of Jesus Christ. He says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So knowing all of this, knowing that he possesses all things, knowing that he can't, he, knowing where he's from, knowing where he is going, well aware that he is the supreme creator, that he's the king of kings, that he's the Lord of lords. Jesus stands up from the dinner in the middle of this argument about which one of them is the greatest. He lays aside his garments and he girds himself with a towel. There's no doubt the perfect illustration of exactly what our king did when he, when he set aside glory, right? And stepped down into humanity, taking on the, the form of a bondservant. Paul tells us again in, in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Who being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. What Paul's telling us is that Jesus set aside his glory. He came down. He became a man. And then he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death. He allowed the, the people he created, his creation to kill him. He allowed his creation to kill him and not just kill him. He allowed us to hang him on a cross. The most despised and despicable way that you could die in that time. It was reserved for the most horrible and heinous of criminals. And he allowed his creation to do so. It's an amazing thing. Verse 5, he tells us that after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with with which he was girded. What an incredible, unforgettable scene, right? It's no doubt that John, all these years later, at almost 90 years old, is able to look back in such detail and remember exactly what this night looked like. How, how do you forget it? How do you forget something like this? Just think about this scene. Everybody's leaning back in this triclinium table, right? All of them are able to, to face each other. And then suddenly this argument breaks out about which one's the greatest. No doubt they're all concerned about who deserves the best position 
once Jesus finally decides to establish this kingdom that he's going to do any day now, right? They've been thinking this for the last three and a half years. When suddenly, without a word, the master stands up in front of them. He takes off his robe and he tucks a towel into his side. And then he gets down, man, with a basin of water. And he begins to take on the role of the very lowest form of humanity that we have. And he starts to wash each one of his disciples' feet. Man, there, there must have been a total hush silence in that room. As he moved from one set of feet to the next. What did it look like? These guys must have had their mouths must have just been dropped open. As they're watching what's going on. As the last guy who was arguing realizes what's happening. And it just falls silent. And Jesus drags the basin around. And wrings the towel out. And just starts wiping the next guy's feet. They know exactly what, what role is supposed to do that. They know exactly what kind of job that is. That's a dirty job. That's a job none of them would ever take in a million years. You couldn't pay them enough. If anybody heard about them doing that, they'd be finished. That's their king. And he's on his knees. And he's wiping each one of their feet. Man, our Lord with his actions silently rebuked every single bit of pride and selfishness that had been in that room. Instantly. You know, too often, man, we... We confuse uh, the poor in spirit that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. We confuse that with the, with the poor spirited. Or we confuse true humility with timidity or inferiority. Right? C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. We live in a world and a culture which celebrates the prideful. And it measures one's success based off of, off of uh, uh, their worth. It measures their worth based off their success. Meanwhile, we belittle the humble. And we assume that any type of humility is a sign of weakness. Our king became one of us so that he could demonstrate to us what true humility was really supposed to look like. And this humility, it, it wasn't born out of poverty. It wasn't born out of tragic circumstances. It's actually quite the opposite. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that he says that it was born out of riches. He says, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That through his poverty, we might become rich. We see here John using the length of his gospel to prove to us two things. That Jesus Christ is God. And just how much he truly loves us. He uses every chapter that he has to show us. In a lot of people's opinion, he even adds an extra chapter in there to show us. It amazes me how he's able to accomplish both of these things by simply recording one example of Jesus Christ's humility. Such an amazing act that he did here. You know, as I'm reading the scriptures, as I read through this word of God, I, I every now and then I come across something that really blows my mind and it will leave me in tears and absolute awe 
when I if I recognize how worthy of a king that we serve. In verse, in verse 3, it tells us that the Father had given all things into Jesus' hands. Right? He says that he gave all things into his hands. So what that means is that with access to anything he could possibly want, anything in the universe, anything in the spiritual realm, anything in heaven, anything under heaven, the Father has given all all things into Jesus Christ's hands. And that being the case, what does he choose to pick up? Jesus picks up a towel and some water so that he can serve us. And he picks up a heavy wooden cross so that he can save us. That's true humility. And that's the king that we get to serve. Let's pray. Dear Father, I, I thank you so much for who you are, for all that you did, all that you do. God, you saved me when I did not deserve saving. You saved us when we did not deserve saving. You came here and allowed yourself to be humiliated you allowed yourself to be tortured you allowed yourself to be mocked by the very creation that you created you did all of this for us god i pray that you that you reveal to us what it is that you have for each one of us in this life i pray that you 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 make us aware god of the opportunities that we have to to live out this example. You will tell us later in this chapter that, that you being our Lord, you being our master, if you did this, how much more so should we do for one another? God, I pray that you make us aware of the opportunities that you give us to, to be your ambassadors, to be your representation, Lord God, to, be, to bring honor and glory to your name. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you are. We pray that you, 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 you cement this word and this message into our hearts as we go out to, back into our lives, Lord God, and, and you just continue to, to do the work that you do. We pray all this in the name of our worthy King Jesus. Amen.